Two weeks ago, our family took a little trip down to a cabin in the middle of Kentucky, and I'm pretty sure that the movie Deliverance was filmed there, all right? It was in the middle of the woods, and on our last night there, Savannah awoke suddenly in the middle of the night. She was in a panic because she had just heard a gunshot outside our home. Well, when she woke me up, I hadn't heard a thing, and, and it's not that I don't trust Savannah. It's just that she has a pretty good track record of hearing things in the middle of the night and then overreacting. How many of you guys can identify with me? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, a few of us. And, and so I was tempted to say, well, you know what? Why don't you go downstairs, check it out. And if there's anybody here, why don't you come up and get me? <laughs> I didn't say that, so I rolled out of bed. I went and checked all the windows. There was no one out there. I couldn't see anything suspicious going on. So I returned to the bedroom and I said, I don't know what you heard, but there definitely wasn't a gunshot out there. Savannah then asked me, well, do you have your gun with you right now? And I said, no, it's actually out in my car, which is out in the driveway. Thinking that this would kind of calm her fears and it would kind of silence her paranoia, in that moment, she then came up with this theory that somebody had somehow broken into my car, had taken my gun out, and was just shooting in the forest at random and was going to break into our house. And, and so realizing that nothing I could say would calm her down, and being the compassionate husband that I am, I just rolled over and I went right to sleep. <laughs> Well, that next morning, I woke up, went downstairs to the kitchen, opened up the freezer, and I noticed that there were brown shavings of ice everywhere. Well, it hadn't been that way the night before, and so I kind of moved some stuff around to see what had happened, when all of a sudden, I found an, an unopened Diet Coke can that my daughter Vera had evidently put in there the day before and had forgotten all about it. Well, you know that if ice freezes, it expands, and when it's in aluminum can, it then will bust open. And so if you've ever wanted to know what it sounds like to have a drunk redneck outside your home at about 2 a.m. shooting off his gun, all you need to do is put an unopened Coke can in your freezer, and there you go. So being the shallow husband that I am, I said, Savannah, hey, come check this out. Look what the sound of the gunshot was last night. And we both laughed and I felt validated and said, yeah, and I was right, wasn't I? <laughs> now, looking back, let me ask you a question. Why didn't I take more action whenever Savannah woke me up and said that somebody was outside with a gun? I mean, why didn't I at least go downstairs and go to my car, then get my gun out? I mean, why were our levels of anxiety and fear on compl completely different? I mean, she was anxious, and I really wasn't all that worried. Well, it's not rocket science. It's because I really didn't believe that there was somebody out there with a gun, right? I mean, I didn't think that that was happening. I knew that there wasn't anyone out there. And so I just kind of dozed off and went back to sleep. You see, my lack of action and my lack of urgency was due to a lack of belief. Now, for the past month or so here at Crossroads, we've been in this series where we have been identifying this mission that Jesus gave to every one of us when he said to, to go out and reach as many people as possible with my message and tell people what I've done for them. Now, if I'm being really honest with you and if I'm being straight with you at the beginning today, I got to tell you that I read Jesus' word sometimes and it goes in one ear and out the other. There are moments when I look for ways to just ignore them and get out of situations where I might be forced into sharing my faith. And so if you can identify with me in any way in that regard, let me just throw out a question for us this morning as, as before we go any further. 
Is it possible that our lack of belief and our lack of urgency with this mission that Jesus has given us is really the result of a lack of belief? I mean, could it be that our lack of action with this mission that Jesus said, hey, it's the most important thing, it's what it's all about, our lack of urgency with it, could it be the result of a lack of belief? Three weeks ago, we talked about how this message that we've been given to us is really urgent because our decision to follow Jesus in this life determines where people spend eternity. And, and so we've been learning that this message is our mission, and we said it like this, the message is our mission that furthers the movement. Now, the movement, we're referring to the church. It's this unstoppable force that Jesus established 2,000 years ago. And no matter the hostility or opposition that the church has encountered over these 20 centuries, nothing has been able to stop the church. It's a movement that God started that he promised to empower. And when we maintain faithfulness to the mission of sharing the message, even in really dark and broken societies, we're promised that growth and fruit will still happen. You see, sometimes the darker the city and the culture is, the more rapidly this mission and this message is furthered. And so one of those cities is uh, what we're going to look at today. Uh, if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of Acts. Acts is towards the back of your Bibles, right in between the gospel or biography according to John and the New Testament book of Romans. All right. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. That's our gift to you. We want you to take it home with you when you leave here uh, in a few minutes. Today, we're going to pick up in chapter 18 in verse 1. All right. Now, as you're turning there, let me just set up the context, give you a little background about what's going on here. All right, God told, Jesus told a guy by the name of Paul to go around to different, really large, influential cities in the first century and start churches. Why? So that his movement would continue. Now, one of those cities was a really dark, broken place, a place called Corinth. And as you're turning there, understand that Corinth was about 50 miles west of Athens, Greece. And it was strategically uh, located in between two different seas, which made trading very effective and efficient. And so if you were a first century business owner, you were an entrepreneur, you wanted to have your headquarters based in Corinth because there was a lot of wealth there. There was a lot of opportunity there. And education was a high priority. And, and this was a very influential city during the first century. But you see, Corinth was also known for some other things too. You see, you could walk down the street in Corinth and pass brothel after brothel. You could meet just about any kind of prostitute that you wanted. You see, sexuality was just rampant and it was just obvious in the city of Corinth. In fact, the Greek god of sex and pleasure, Aphrodite, she had her temple there. Now, Aphrodite is actually where we get the word aphrodisiac from, right? And this temple housed over 1,000 prostitutes where they gave themselves over to each other because this was a value that the city held on to. And so, in other words, what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth, all right? And so think of Las Vegas, New York, Los Angeles, Miami, all wrapped up into one, and you have Corinth. And yet this is one of the cities and locations that God chose to further his movement. So again, sometimes the darker the place, the more the mission expands and furthers. Now check out verse 1 of uh, chapter 18. Here's what we read. After this... Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, and that's a really important detail we're going to look at, 
because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them every Sabbath. Paul reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade both the Jews and the Greeks. Now, I want you to first notice how Paul was a tent maker. Now, Luke, the author of Acts, this detail is not by coincidence. Now, the reason why Paul was a tent maker uh, was more than just a way to support his ministry. You see, during the first century, there, were a group, there, there was a group of men called the Cynic Philosophers who traveled from city to city and preached on street corners and marketplaces. They were a part of something called the Cynic Movement that taught people how to be free from your wants and desires and that every material possession, everything physical you see in the world is evil. Now the irony of these Cynic Philosophers was that they depended on the contributions from the people who submitted to their philosophy. And so in other words, they were supported by their followers. But you see, these philosophers were deceptive yet eloquent teachers who took advantage of really gullible, vulnerable people. I mean, they were kind of like the televangelist of their day. You know, send us $100 and we'll send you a prayer towel back that's been anointed by the Spirit of God. And all of a sudden, you're going to have the favor of God in your life and everything's going to work out just perfectly for you, right? <laughs> And so Paul arrived in Corinth knowing that these people would associate him with cynic philosophers. Now check this out. Although they were wrong, it didn't matter. Paul knew that perception was reality for the Corinthians. Paul knew that if he didn't go out of his way to prove that he was different from these false teachers, that he would have never had the opportunity to share with the Corinthians about what Jesus had done. And so by having a job as a tent maker that was self-supporting, he was in essence destroying the Corinthians' false perception that he was just in it for the money, which would have, let's be honest, it would have been a barrier to Jesus. Now take a look at verse 4 and notice how he communicated. First we see that on the Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue. Now this word in the original Greek literally means to dialogue, to exchange ideas back and forth. It, it conveys the idea of a, of a conversation taking place, all right? And then we read that he was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. In the original Greek, that persuasion word really means to, uh, it, it's more than just trying to convince somebody of your point of view. It's more than just trying to convey truth. No, mutual respect is taking place. Love, you are seeking to win the approval and favor over of the person that you're having a dialogue with. And so don't miss it right here. Paul was not, Paul was not being a jerk, all right? His mission was not to walk into Athens and be invasive. He didn't walk in and hand out salvation tracts to people that he didn't know, all right? He didn't go up to random cars in a parking lot and, you know, put service times underneath their windshield wipers. He didn't stand up on street corners with big signs that said, God hates corn, turn or burn, because is that really effective? No, Paul knew that. And yet also the opposite is true as well. Paul didn't walk in and say, hey, look, how you're living doesn't matter. God is approving of everything. All you need to do is love him in return. No, Paul understood that his approach with the message that he was carrying was really important. And so what we see happening here in our text is Paul altering the way that he communicated so that his message could actually be heard and people would be given the chance to respond to the offer of Jesus. Look at verse 5. We then read this. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. 
Now, Silas and Timothy were partners in Paul's ministry. They allowed Paul to focus on his primary gift, which was preaching. Earlier in Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus told all of his followers that his spirit, he himself, would empower the church to be on mission. In other words, the movement would advance because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so practically, what this means for us today is that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, the living, sovereign creator God of the entire universe has actually taken up residence inside you through the form of the Holy Spirit. Now, when the Holy Spirit took up residence inside you, he gave you a specific, unique gift that only you alone possess. And so if you're a Christian, you have a gift. You may not know what that gift is at this point in time, but God has given you that gift so that you can contribute to the furthering of his movement. Now, here's the thing. Our gifts are equal in value, but they're not equal in function. All right, they're equal in value, but they're not necessarily equal in function. Now, for example, my uh, gifts that uh, I believe God's given me is preaching and leadership. I'm, I'm confident about that. But it's a good thing that all of us here today, God hadn't designed each of us the way that he designed me. All right? I mean, if that were the case, this church would just be a mess, more of a mess than it already is. All right? We would never start a service on time. And when the service would begin, it would just be boring as heck because I'm not creative in the least. And you would walk through the halls and there'd be holes all over the, the walls because that would just reveal my failed attempts of trying to hang curtain rods or hang different picture frames because I'm not really all that handy, though I think that I am at different times. And, and when you might go pick up your kids back in the nursery, chances are they would still have a dirty diaper and then a diaper rash later when you got home and... And if you think that God has uniquely blessed all of us with the same gift, all right, you don't want to hear me sing. Three weeks ago, I found out this past week that our media team accidentally recorded my microphone as I was standing down here in worship. And as I was just singing along back there, they were recording my singing and my voice. And Andy Tier, our media director, actually gave me a clip of it this past week. And, and so if you need further proof that, that God hasn't wired all of us the exact same way, why don't you listen to this? Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, always oh, Lord of all. Mm. Mm. Yes, yes, Lord. I am not the next worship pastor, all right? And that is not even a joyful noise. That is just horrible, right? But you see, from the beginning, God designed his church in such a way that it wouldn't be about any one of us, any one gift, right? And so this is why the most common metaphor all throughout the New Testament of the church, of this movement, is that of a human body. We are the body of Christ. And, and so a human body without a hand, without an arm, a leg, or a neck, or a head would be incomplete, right? And so when we neglect our spiritual gift, when we don't use our spiritual gift for the furthering of the movement, you may not miss out on much, but you know who will? The person beside you, the church, 
And so God designed it from the beginning to be that way that we would all build each other up according to our gifts and that his movement would further when we put our gifts uh, to use. I want you to check out the end of verse five again. Paul testified that Jesus was the Messiah, all right? And um, Paul testified that, that he was the one who would connect us back to God. Now, this is really important for us to remember when it comes to connecting with people who struggle with this whole Jesus thing. Now, Paul did not argue with these, with these first century philosophers at first about how long it took God to create the universe. I mean, he didn't start with Noah and the flood and explain that away, right? No, that's not where he began. And so here's the thing. For people in our life, they're a little bit skeptical. Maybe you walk in here today and you think, I'm not even there yet with this whole Jesus thing. Well, here's the truth. You, people, will always struggle with other claims in Scripture until they accept the claim of Scripture. You see, we will always get distracted and lost in the other just honestly weird supernatural teachings and stories that we find in the Bible until we first wrestle with what's most important, the primary claim in Scripture. And so what is the primary claim in Scripture? Well, it's that God entered this world in the form of a man to pay for our sin. And so personally believing that Jesus died and rose again for you is what saves you from the penalty of death that we all deserve because of sin in our life. And so Paul later told this church in a letter that he wrote later on in life that, that this message of Jesus dying and rising again was of first importance. And so the implication is that, look, all scripture is equally breathed by God, but not all scripture is equally important. Because you can believe and accept certain truths in scripture, but if you miss out on the claim of scripture, you're not saved. And so Jesus is what's of first importance. You see, our hope, is in, our hope is found in the empty tomb alone. The empty tomb tells us that we don't have to die. The empty tomb tells us that our God is a warrior king who warred for our freedom and won. You see, our faith isn't even contingent upon us lacking doubt and lacking questions. Tim Keller said it like this, and this has been a quote that's really helped me out in life, that it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Do you think that we will ever get to a point in life where we never have questions and we never have doubts? Probably not. And yet I take comfort in knowing that it's not, my, not the strength of my faith and belief that saves me, but it's the one in whom I place my faith and belief in. We all have doubts, right? I mean, none of us have it all together. There's stuff in the Bible that personally I struggle to understand and I don't like. And at first glance, I don't want to accept it. And, and the truth is, a lot of us, we've walked in here today with a lot of good questions, right? Maybe you think, well, well God, you, you say that you're good. You say that you're sovereign. Yeah, why am I still without a job right now? Or God, you said that you're the author of life, yet why did you allow my wife to miscarry? God, you claim to be the ultimate healer, yet why did my cancer return? You ever been there before? I have. And you see, we all come to the table this morning with doubts and, and questions, and those are legitimate things. And sometimes the best thing that we can say to people in our life who are f close to us but far from God when they ask us some questions is to simply respond by saying, I, I don't know. But you see, one place that I have been resting in lately is that is that you don't always need to understand God. 
You don't need to always be without doubts because if you ever got to a place where you never had questions, you never had doubts, you never struggled to understand who he is, then you would invertly be assuming that God is just like you because there's never been a disagreement or misunderstanding uh, along the way in your journey with him. And so here's our challenge that we need to do with those who are close to us but far from God. And that is to help them wrestle with God by not getting distracted with the other claims of Scripture without first looking at the claim of Scripture. And then starting with Jesus and then going from there. Now, verse 6 of our text says that when Paul told the Corinthians about Jesus, that they opposed him and and they wanted to physically hurt him. And, And so Paul just looked for another opportunity in a different part of the city. Look at what verse 7 says. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Now, this represents the start of the Corinthian church. You see, when these people believed and they were baptized, God added them to the movement. They were enlisted in his mission. Now, here at Crossroads, we kind of say it like this, that when you enter a relationship with Jesus, you're not only saved from something, but you're also saved for something as well. We have purpose. Now, the Corinthian church struggled to understand how to really live on mission in their city. And so later on, Paul wrote them a letter, and he spent an entire section of this letter talking about the best way for them to communicate this life-changing message in a really dark culture. Here's what we read in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. Paul explains his approach when communicating the gospel. He says, to the weak, I became weak. In other words, he's just kind of going through a list of all these different people and cultures and and different societies that Paul was willing to blend into so that he could establish some common ground. And so this example is, to the weak, I became weak. Why? To win the weak. Paul then says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means... I might save some. And do you see how adaptable and flexible Paul was willing to be so that people created in the image of God could have the chance to actually be connected back to their creator through Jesus? Let me ask it this way. What would be at risk if we weren't flexible with how we communicate our message? Well, Paul actually addresses this earlier in verse 12. Look at what he says. He says, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, this is an interesting word. It's the only time it appears in the New Testament. It's actually a military term. And the image that we get from this word in the Greek is, is of a, um, an army putting a barrier or a blockade in a roadway where they know that the opposing army is going to come after them. And so the point of that hindrance is to stop and to hinder that army from going any further. And so Paul, this is Paul's way of saying, hey, look, I don't want to be that way for people who don't know Jesus. I don't want to be a hindrance for people who need to bump into him. I'll do whatever it takes, Paul says. Let me say it like this. How we communicate should never distract from what we communicate. How we communicate should never distract from what we communicate. In other words, our approach must clarify and complement the message uh, that we carry and that we're trying to spread. So this is a call for us to establish bridges and to knock down walls in our society. Back in 2014, LifeWay Research Group down in Nashville, Tennessee, did a study that revealed over 3,700 churches in America closed their doors every single year. I didn't believe it at first, but upon 
doing a little bit more research and reading further into the article, the autopsy report of these dying or dead churches revealed that somewhere along the way, the leaders and the pastors of these dying and dead churches got away from the eternal truths of Scripture. Yet also, unintentionally probably, these churches had created a culture within themselves that was more of a hindrance than a help for people who were wanting to come and see and experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. And you see, that can easily happen to any church. No church ever starts out looking for a way to die. <laughs> but it's a slow shift. It's a slow drift. And so if you haven't picked up on it yet, this entire series has been all about keeping the main thing the main thing. That, that we at Crossroads are all about seeing people come to know Jesus, to connect everyone everywhere uh, to him. And so we are going to be very crazy and radical about seeing this mission and movement furthered in our society and around the world. You see, we will be a church that, that will not put tradition before people. We will be a church that will do whatever it takes to reach lost and broken people. We will be a church that no matter what, we will always stand by the truths of Scripture, yet we will communicate them in a loving and gentle way. But you know what? We're not going to be afraid of speaking hard things just because we want to be accepted by society, but we want to say it in such a way that we hold high the name of Jesus so that people can come and see him and then learn a better way to live. Now, for that to happen, for that to happen, we've got to establish just some values. We've got to say, hey, here's what we're going to be about, right? And so just for the next few minutes, I just want to walk through some hills that we as a church are going to die on. The first value goes like this, that messy people are welcome. Messy people are welcome. And if this weren't the case, I couldn't be up here. <laughs> But messy people are welcome. You don't need to have it all figured out before you show up here. And so let's continue fostering an environment here that invites people to ask questions and struggle with faith. I envision Crossroads in the future being a safe place for the broken to find healing and freedom. Now, Jesus was the best at this. In Luke chapter 19, he tells us that his main purpose and mission in life is to seek and save the lost. And, and what we find out when reading all about his ministry is that his method and, and how he modeled this was by eating dinner with really broken sinners. Now these people, understand, were really messy people that had made lots of mistakes in their past and carried around loads of shame. More than likely, the people that Jesus ate with, their families had excluded because they were an embarrassment to the family name. Now, in the ancient world, who you ate a meal with told outsiders who you really were. You see, the table was a source of identity. And so in an honor and shame-based society, you really guarded who sat at your table and whose table you sat at. Because you know what? Your reputation was on the line, big time. But Jesus never really cared about what people thought. Take a look at the perception that the religious leaders had of Jesus because of him associating with really messy people. This is Jesus quoting the religious leaders. He said this, the son of man, he says, me, Jesus, myself, I came eating and drinking and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, Jesus was all things to all people. I mean, if sharing a meal or drinking a glass of wine built a bridge to lost and broken people, Jesus said, I'm in. I'm in every single time. And you see, Jesus, all throughout his ministry, ate meals with people that caused others and outsiders to really question his motives, to question his sanity and even religion. 
And so we want Crossroads to keep being a safe place where no matter what you bring to the table that you're welcome here. Maybe you come in here this morning and you've been labeled a, a drunk or an alcoholic in your past. Maybe you're a stripper, maybe you're a prostitute. Maybe you're a single mom battling depression. Maybe your dad with just a lot of pressure on your plate right now and your anger is just starting to come out sideways and in all these different places and, and you're just, you're making a mess of your life right now. Maybe, maybe you're raised in the church and you feel as if you live a double life and you feel like a hypocrite at times. Maybe you find yourself addicted to porn. Maybe you find yourself addicted to something else, meth or some type of drug and you don't want anyone else to know about it. You see, Jesus never intended for his followers to be a community of people where you had to hide and repress your brokenness and darkness. And so if that's where you're at today, I just want you to know that we here at Crossroads, we are a community of imperfect people who could look you in the eye and say, me too. We've been there before. And so that's who we're gonna continue being in the future. Again, Jesus says, look, the more freedom that you experience is only contingent upon your willingness to come clean and bring the darkness out into light. And so we wanna create an atmosphere here that says, hey, come and see this Jesus who has not only saved us, but he has taught us a better way to live. And, and then you and Jesus can work yourself out from there. When we tell people to sin no more before dropping our stones, we've really got it backwards. Look at the next value. It goes like this, no hiding allowed. You see, we unknowingly create obstacles to Jesus when messy people don't feel good enough for Jesus because their perception of Christianity is that you kind of have to clean yourself up before you show up. And really it doesn't make sense because this is the equivalent of taking a shower before getting into the bath, right? No, you come to church because this place is a hospital. That's the intention of it. Now, the truth is we're all a mess. We're all broken people. Some of us, honestly, we're just better at hiding it than others. Yet when we hide or we deny our brokenness, we enslave ourselves to a certain image and we heighten a false standard that keeps people from experiencing Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I realized recently that I am really good. I'm really good at hiding stuff that I don't want anybody else to know. You see, we've all got stuff in our life that we don't want anybody else to know about. And so we work really hard to suppress it or deny it or, or just put it in the closet and, and to hide it at all costs. And yet there's no freedom in that, right? This past week I was in Las Vegas and I was, I was having dinner with a, a mentor of mine who leads a church out there. In his office, he has this picture that reminds him of his primary purpose in Vegas. And it's a picture of the words Grace City over the Las Vegas Strip right here. And this reminds Judd that no matter the darkness, grace is available. Now, what's interesting is that Vegas is known to be sin city, right? Well, the Bible tells us that because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, that where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And so what happens in Vegas doesn't have to stay in Vegas because grace frees us from not only the penalty, but frees us from the pressure to maintain an image and to cover over it. And so no hiding allowed. That's what it means to follow after Jesus. Here's another um, value. It goes like this. Our mission is more important than our preferences. Our mission's more important than our preferences. It's a very subtle thing in the church when we drift from making it about others to then making it about ourselves. Now, if you think about it, every mission worth fulfilling in life requires a certain amount of sacrifice, doesn't it? I mean, one way you might know that you're living on mission here at Crossroads is that if there are some stuff or there is 
you know, some activity or ministry here at Crossroads that you don't necessarily like or you care for, but you serve with a joyful attitude anyways, that's a good indicator that you're living on mission. Because I'll be honest with you, I don't like everything going on around here. All right? We're all, we've all been there before. I love watching Gary McDowell serve. Gary McDowell is one of our section hosts in this service, and uh, Gary's very smart, and he knows a lot about the Bible, and just about every single week, I can count on getting an email from Gary challenging something that I said or correcting some statement that I made or, or disagreeing with some decision that uh, we as a church made. And don't tell Gary, but I stopped reading his emails months ago, all right? I just forward them on to Todd, and Todd responds. <laughs> but you know what? If you were to serve in Gary's section, you never know it. Gary just has a way about him of, serving with a smile, greeting guests. He's actually led many in his section to the Lord. He's baptized them. You see, being on mission does not mean that you neglect your preferences or that you don't have a preferred style. No, it means that we continually remind ourselves that it's not about us and it's about the mission continuing and the movement being furthered. And you see, Jesus is honored when we sacrifice our preferences so that his purposes can continue. Now, you know here at Crossroads that we value hospitality a lot, and, and hospitality is just a really practical way for us to tell people before the service even begins that, that you're welcome here, that we love you, that we care for you, not only us as a people, but the God that we serve as well. And, and so we are trying our best to create a more excellent and uh, welcoming environment that, that really communicates and illustrates the gospel, the message of Jesus in that way. Now, one thing that we've learned in the past year is that it's really hard for us to serve people well, to maintain hospitality when our services are so really, are, are really crowded. Now, by brief show of hands, how many of you actually look forward to going to the mall around Christmas time, like right after Thanksgiving? Anybody? Yeah, nobody. Okay, we had three people in the last service, and they are what you call liars, all right? <laughs> no, we avoid the malls at all costs around then, Right? Nobody signs up to stand in long lines and to, you know, stand in uh, just aisles that are crowded and chaotic and you have clogged up toilets and stores and I've actually never had that happen, but um, we've all been behind that person who has like a million things in their cart and three coupons per item that they have and, and it's just frustrating. So what do we do? We try to order online. We avoid the malls and the stores at all costs during that time. Now, it's really hard for us who have been a part of Crossroads for a long time for us to realize this, but from a guest perspective, that's kind of what 9 o'clock and 1045 here on Sunday morning feels like. That we have a lot of us here that prefer this hour, and, and honestly, it can be chaotic and confusing for a guest, and, and it can feel a little bit constricting at times. And, and so one challenge and one ask that I just want to put before you is, will you consider attending our Saturday night service at 530? Saturday night service is the identical service to what you would experience here on a Sunday morning. Besides, that service could really use some livening up, all right? Sometimes I think I'm preaching at a funeral, all right? And so please come and help me, please, all right? But no, it, it's a great way for you to open up a seat and uh, create some space and, and eliminate a potential obstacle and barrier for people who are coming here. And we want them to have a really good uh, experience. And, and besides all else, I mean, you get to sleep in on Sunday, right? And yes, Saturday church still counts, okay? Here's the last hill that we're going to die on. It goes like this. We're never going to give up. 
We're gonna be relentless. You see, chances are there's some people that are close to you that maybe you've written off because you think, you know what, there's no way they'll ever change. There's no way they'll ever transform. You've been down that road before. You're exhausted at the amount of conversations that you've had with them. You've maybe even given up praying for them. Therefore, you've just kind of thrown in the towel because you think that there's no hope. But I want you to know that God has never given up on anyone. I want you to look at how a guy named Peter describes salvation in 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. These were more than just words for Peter. No, this was something that he had experienced in his life. We're told that right before Jesus was arrested and put on trial, Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him three different times before the rooster crowed the next day. Now, though Peter in that moment pledged his loyalty to Christ, that's exactly what happened several hours later. The rooster crowed, and Luke tells us that Jesus then looked straight at Peter, looked him in the eye. Now, for the longest time, I always thought that this was Jesus' way of expressing his disappointment for what Peter had done. I mean, this was Jesus' way of getting back at him and giving him the ugly eyes, saying, man, what, what have you done? And yet what's really interesting is that the word Luke uses to describe the way Jesus looked at him means to look upon with love and compassion. And so I don't know what shocked Peter more, his sin or the fact that Jesus didn't give up on him even moments before his death. And so you may have walked in here today given up on Jesus, but he hadn't given up on you. You may have given up on someone close to you to know Christ, but, but Jesus hasn't given up on him. Now we're almost done here. I wanna close by telling you about a guest that I met here last month, a guy by the name of Dan. Dan waited around a long time to talk to me after service. And, and when he first shook my hand, he caught me by surprise with what he said. He shook my hand and he said, you know, I shouldn't be here right now. I had every intention of waking up this morning and committing suicide. Dan then proceeded to walk me through the plan that he had. And, and so I then asked Dan about his past and it just tore me to shreds. When he was little, a parent died right in front of his face. Another parent had neglected him. He'd been sexually abused. He was walking through just a deep uh, season of depression and loneliness and fear. And so Dan woke up that morning just Wanting to end it all, that was the light at the end of the tunnel. That's how he was going to escape from all the pain. Well, it just so happened that about a week before, a friend of Dan's who attends Crossroads here had been inviting him to church and had been inviting him to come and see and experience a weekend service. Along with that invitation, this friend of Dan's had sent him a link to some of our weekend services. And and so seven days before he planned to commit suicide, he decided to check out uh, a couple services from our previous series, Catch Me If You Can. And the service that stuck with him most was when 40 of you walked forward and were baptized and you decided to stop running from God because Dan later told me in that moment that he realized he needed to stop running from God. And yet that service really didn't mean much to him in the moment until a week later he woke up and he got in his car ready to take his life, but he just couldn't go through with it. He said, I can't really explain it. I've never been here before in my life, but I pulled up in the parking lot. I pulled up in a parking space. I've walked in here and I just wanna know, am I welcome here? I said, absolutely. You see, Dan later gave his life to the Lord. He repented of his sin and he received Jesus. And 
and now has a chance to, to learn a better way to live and know about the freedom and hope that he has in, in Christ alone. But I got to tell you that when I heard Dan's story, I've never been more grateful to be a part of a community of people that welcomes messy people with open arms. And I've never been more grateful to have a staff and volunteer, uh, volunteers here that know that leveraging technology for the gospel is a great way to reach people right where they're at. And yet I'm also grateful for Dan's friend, whoever he is, that he didn't give up, that he didn't give up on him. Because where would Dan be today had he just thrown in the towel? And so the truth is, you and I, we may be the only proof in someone's life that God hadn't given up on them. Now, maybe this series has just been a really great reminder for you about what it's all about. Maybe you're new and this is a good taste of who we are as a church. It's a taste of, of maybe what's to come. And, and we've kind of laid it all out there. And, and we do hope that you're a part of our journey. But there are others of us in here who you want to you wanna learn more. You're ready to take this whole movement and mission thing a little bit more seriously. Well, in just a moment, Daryl's going to come out here and he's going to explain a, a class that we have available for you coming up uh, beginning in January that I want to encourage every one of you who have not been a part of it uh, to check it out because this class uh, is a tool that we as a church have put together to further the movement of God so that we can keep having not only an impact right in our community, uh, but literally all across the world. And this class is a great foundation for you to know more about this movement, all right, uh, yet also what it really looks like uh, to be a missionary in our community and around the world. Uh, so I'm going to pray. Uh, then Daryl's going to come out and uh, tell you more about this class and how you can take your next step with that. Let's pray, okay? God, I thank you that never once have you given up on me. And God, even when we may have given up on ourselves... You always see the good in us. You see us for who we're becoming rather than who we are. You see us for our true identity rather than different mistakes and uh, different decisions that we may make. And so, God, we're grateful for that. I pray that you would continue to empower us as a, as a church, as a community of believers to be on mission, to further the movement that you have entrusted to us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that the empty tomb has fueled this unstoppable force that will never be stopped until you come back and you call us home, Jesus. For it's in your name that we pray and gather. Amen.